Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 114, Rise of the Phoenix. As we near the end of the rulers phase of the podcast, I'm going to be reverting to a weekly version so I can kind of finish things up quicker. I'd like to get Putin done on April 30th of this year, which would be the third anniversary of the start of the Russian Rulers podcast. But don't fear. The podcast is not going to be ending, but kind of changing to a new format, away from the rulers, and to the events and people that make Russian history truly fascinating. But now, on to this podcast. Last time, we followed Boris Yeltsin as he rose from his position as first secretary of the Sverdlovsk Oblast to first secretary of Moscow, and then the fall from power, which was no doubt due to his brash style an open criticism of the Soviet system and its leadership. After his dress down by Gorbachev and the fellow members of the Politburo, Yeltsin was committed to a sanitarium and Barvika west of Moscow. His stay was, as he put it, a time where he got to look inwardly, deep into his inner purpose in life. Quote, It is hard to describe the state I was in. I was analyzing every step I had ever taken, every word I had spoken, my principles, my views of the past, present, and future. Day and night, day and night, I summoned up the images of hundreds of people, friends, comrades, neighbors, and workmates. I reviewed my relationships with my wife, children, and grandchildren. I reviewed my beliefs. All that was left where my heart had been was a burnt-out cinder. Everything around me and within me was incinerated. Yes, it was a time of fierce struggle with myself. I knew that if I lost that fight, everything I had worked for in my life would be lost. It was like the torments of hell. I later heard gossip that I had contemplated suicide. Although... The position in which I found myself might drive someone to that simple way out. It was not in my character to give up. There were now grumblings on the streets of Moscow as people were talking and speculated about what happened to Yeltsin. Well, if Stalin had been in charge, a single bullet to the head of Boris and threats of similar actions to anyone questioning the event would have been likely. Under the next four leaders, a trip to a gulag or a forced retirement would have been the likely outcome. But under Gorbachev, these choices were not available because of perestroika and glasnost. As Colton puts it in his biography of Yeltsin, quote, The great Cossack mutineers of the 17th and 18th centuries, Stenka Razin and Yemelyan Pugachev, paid for their impudence with their heads. The 20th century mutineer kept his. The executioner's axe and the gulag being unavailable. What was Gorbachev going to do with him? On November 19, 1987, Gorbachev kind of handed something to Yeltsin that he didn't need to. He was appointed to a post as a deputy chairman of a major construction committee. He had not, as he had feared, been sent to Outer Mongolia as an ambassador as Khrushchev had done to Vacheslav Molotov. But it was still a miserable demotion, as his fellow workers were ordered to spy on him, and he knew it. The KGB 
eavesdropped on his conversations as well. He felt that all he was now allowed to do was, as he put it, shuffle paper. In the February plenum, the Central Committee confirmed his demotion from the Politburo. As Lev Sukhanov remembers, when Yeltsin got to work that day, quote, when he got to work that morning, his face was vacant. It looked to me like the finale of a burial service staged by his Politburo colleagues. He suffered from all of this, but somehow found strength within himself and worked the entire day. At this point, Boris had a plan in mind to put his neck out even further instead of giving up and cowering in the corner. At the 19th CPSU conference in late June and early July, of he trooped to the foot of the dais and stood there staring at the presidium and brandishing his red card. Looking daggers, Gorbachev had a staffer tell him he would be recognized if he sat down and waited his turn. Yeltsin did so and was given the floor. His 15-minute speech put him squarely in the position as the loudest voice for reform in the Soviet world. He railed against the nomenclatura and their, quote, luxurious residences, dachas, and sanatoriums. He then demanded to be restored to his previous position, a bold request, as in the 1988 Soviet Union, it typically took a long time to rehabilitate a political enemy. As Yeltsin put it, quote, Comrade delegates, rehabilitation after 50 years has become the norm, and this has a health effect on our society. But I am requesting my political rehabilitation while I am alive. I consider this a question of principle. You all know that my plenum of the Central Committee was found to be politically erroneous. But the questions I brought up at the plenum have been raised repeatedly in the press and by communists. Here virtually all these questions have sounded in reports and speeches given from the Tribune. I consider the only error in my presentations to have been that I spoke at an inopportune time, right before the 70th anniversary of October 1917. We all have to master the rules of political discussion, to tolerate opponents, as Lenin did, and not to rush to hand labels on them or to brand them heretics. The speech Yeltsin gave disrupted the proceedings, as it was no longer a meeting to rubber-stamp Gorbachev's policies, but a meeting to deal with the can of worms Yeltsin had opened. Sides were taken and splits were opening. The Soviet Union was being torn apart from within. Speaker after speaker eviscerated Yeltsin, led by Ligachev, but in the end, it backfired on all of them, as Boris became immensely popular by the people for standing up for them against the corrupt nomenclatura and all the corrupt apparatchiks. Yeltsin, for his part, felt beaten down, but over the coming weeks his spirits kept on rising. He received thousands of letters and telegraphs praising him. The people saw him as a beacon of hope. As he put it, the people, quote, stretched out their hands to me, and I was able to lean on them and get back on my feet. He now began to have the courage to speak up again. Yeltsin courted reform-minded students and spoke to foreign correspondents whenever he could. 
Boris's plain talk and every man approach was making him more and more popular by late 1988. By early 1989, Yeltsin's speeches and actions clearly made him the de facto rival to Gorbachev. Though the general secretary still viewed Boris as an intellectual inferior. With the looming national elections coming, Gorbachev was warned not to allow Yeltsin to participate, to send him off somewhere. Mikhail Sergeyevich's overconfidence and low opinion of Boris led him to ignore the advice. On January 10, 1989, Boris, again making himself a rival, did something no one on the Central Committee had dared to do since the 1920s. He cast the first dissenting vote. He abstained on the vote to elect Igor Ligachev to the new parliament. By the next vote in March, he was joined by 77 others. Now, Boris had to decide, where would he try to get a seat in the new parliament? Would he try in Sverdlovsk, Beryshniki, or Boligron and try District Number 1? He chose District Number 1, Moscow. His popularity by this time caused other anti-establishment candidates all over Russia to claim to be Yeltsin supporters. When the election came about in March, despite all the shenanigans that the old-time communist apparatchiks tried, Yeltsin beat his opponent, Evgeny Brakov, handily, by receiving 5.1 million out of 5.7 million votes cast, a whopping 89% of the vote. Now, according to Colton, what was even more astonishing was, quote, Moscow had 1.1 million CPSU members, and Brakov's take was less than 400,000. Yeltsin netted the ballots of most of Moscow's communists to say nothing of the non-communists. By this time, Gorbachev and his advisors tried hard to offer Yeltsin other jobs, such as a major ministerial position, but Boris would have none of it. Instead, he took his seat and was made chairman of the Committee of Construction and Architecture, a real do-nothing job. In July 1989, a group known as the Interregional Deputies Group formed, and in their conscience, was the Soviet human rights activist Andrei Sakharov, the physicist and Nobel Prize winner. At first, Yeltsin seemed out of place, but gradually ingratiated himself with them. Unfortunately, Sakharov suffered a fatal heart attack on December 14, 1989. That year, Boris also had a whirlwind tour of the United States, becoming its darling even got a meeting with the American president, George Herbert Walker Bush. Gorbachev, of course, was not amused by Yeltsin's trip. His time in the U.S. made Boris more sure than ever that the Soviet system was a failure and that the Communist Party had been lying to the people for decades. As he put it to Sukhanov, who made the trip with him, quote, They had to deceive the population. And now it is plain why Soviet citizens were not permitted to go abroad. They were afraid that their eyes would be opened. It is here that Yeltsin had his, as I like to put it, his ultimate aha moment. Making changes to the system as it stood was pointless. 
it was akin to putting a bandage on a broken leg. The leg, the Soviet system, was broken. Cosmetic changes that Gorbachev was proposing, as Yeltsin put it, was merely a band-aid. The leg, his Russia, needed to be reset. But not the communist way of resetting, as was tried by Lenin and Stalin when they tried to fix the shattered Romanov leg. A new way had to be attempted. His trip to the U.S. had transformed him. As he put it in his book, Notes of a President, quote, I changed my worldview, that I had been a communist by Soviet tradition, by inertia, and by upbringing, but not by conviction. By now, he joined a committee to look into ways to change the Communist Party into a social democratic one, similar to Britain's Labour Party. As Colton puts it, quote, It was a way station on Yeltsin's road out of the party. He was transiting from the Gorbachev in a hurry he had been in 1986 to 87 to the Gorbachev with a difference in 1988-89 to the forget-about-Gorbachev of 1990-91. Within the totality that was the USSR, Yeltsin could go nowhere. The stagnant, moorbound Politburo was no room for the reform Gorbachev was proposing, much less the radicalism of Yeltsin. Still, many of his allies urged Boris to retake his position as first secretary of Moscow. Yeltsin, for his part, thought that that was really nearsighted. He set his sights on all of Russia. As his ally Lev Sukhanov wrote, this, quote, was more to Yeltsin's taste. He does not like to take the same track twice. Monotony nauseates him. By now, the new elections in 1990 were to be held in Russia as part of Gorbachev's reform plan. Yeltsin saw more, more in the way of separating Russia from the Soviet Union. Many in Gorbachev's entourage urged him to put up a strong candidate against Yeltsin, but he refused. Running in his familiar oblast of Sverdlovsk, Boris received 84% of the vote on March 4, 1990. Gorbachev was in a state of panic. He began to make concessions to placate his opponents on the left. He repealed the law that allowed only the communists to be the sole party that could represent the people. At this point, it was suggested that Gorbachev immediately hold a general popular election and put himself up as candidate for the presidency of Russia. He refused, which, in hindsight, would prove to be a big mistake. Had he done so then, he would have won. But shortly thereafter, as his popularity plummeted, it would be too late. Yeltsin made it clear that his mission was to seek autonomy for Russia. Gorbachev scoffed at the idea, so he nominated Alexander Vlasov as his man to run for the head of the RSFSR. Ivan Poloskov also ran as part of the establishment, but after a close vote, Yeltsin came out on top, much to, sh to Gorbachev's chagrin. By now, Boris had moved into the Russian White House. His next move was inevitable, but not without major consequences. Thinking things out carefully with his aides, 
Boris Yeltsin in July 1991 at the 28th CPSU Congress asked that the communists transform themselves into a social democratic one. He implored them to give up their old ways. Quote, Let those who think of any other variant look at the fate of the communist parties of the countries of Eastern Europe. They cut themselves off from the people, misunderstood their role, and found themselves left behind. When this proposal was unsuccessful, as Yeltsin knew it would, he decided to quit the Communist Party after being a member for 29 years. Quote, Taking into account our transition to a multi-party society, I cannot carry out the decisions of the CPSU. He made a planned march down the aisle and out of the room in a dramatic style. Gorbachev's friend told him, quote, You pulled teeth so as to keep the position of general secretary of the party. Yeltsin spit in its face and went to do what it was up to you to do. Then, in order to placate people more on the left, four of Yeltsin's biggest enemies, Vitaly Volotnikov, Nikolai Rykov, Lev Zarkov, and Igor Legachev, were tossed off the Politburo. A Politburo which would only last a few more months. Because of Gorbachev's popularity in the West, few leaders acknowledged Yeltsin's ascendancy, except two people. Great Britain's Margaret Thatcher, who passed away this last week, and ex-president of the United States, Richard Nixon. Nixon said of his trip to Russia, and the one surprise he met there is recorded by Colton. Quote, he pointed a finger in the air. One word, Yeltsin. Several long moments went by before he continued. God damn the press. If you listened to them, you'd think Yeltsin was an incompetent, disloyal boob. The only reason the press have treated him as badly as they have is because he has some rough edges. He doesn't have the grace and the ivory tower polish of Gorbachev. Nixon shuddered with self-recognition. He moves and inspires the people, despite what the Western press says about him. Yeltsin's defiance fed into his own. This guy has enormous political appeal. He has the potential to be a great revolutionary leader, charging up the people, his own silent majority, he said, making the parallel explicit. He is very direct. He looks you straight in the eye. He has core convictions that no longer involve communism. He is infinitely better for the United States than Gorbachev. But I don't think he wants Gorbachev's job. Well, do you mean that he doesn't want to lead the Soviet Union? But he may want to lead an independent Russia, I asked. Right, because he knows there's no future for the Soviet Union. None. If Russia has any future, Yeltsin is it. Join me next time as we follow the coup attempt on Gorbachev, Yeltsin's reaction as it, and his ascendancy to his position as a Russian ruler. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please visit my blog site at www.russianrulershistory.com where I'm counting down the best and the worst Russian rulers of all time. Also, come on over to Facebook and join our growing community of Russian history fans 
so you can ask a question, leave a comment, or make a suggestion. So now, as always, das Vidanya и спасибо большое.